You are listening to Primal Radio, the podcast dedicated to combat sports, martial arts, self-defense, and the warrior mindset. And here are your hosts from Hamilton, New Jersey, Jim McCann, and London, England, Tom McGrath. All right, Primal Radio, we're back. What's up, Tommy? So I've had a very annoying one just then. You know those ear pods, the little headphones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got down to the station. I'm like, oh, shit, one of them's fallen out. So then I've had to go back to my flat. Yeah, yeah. Every little step along the route, see if I could find this one little thing. It's like a needle in a haystack. Quite expensive over here as well. You have such troubles, Tom, such troubles. I know, I know. Yeah, it's a tough life. (laughs) Hey, real quick, you saw Scraps fight? Amazing, yes. Yeah, second round KO. I've been sharing that around. Yeah. It's got like 15,000 views. Our next fight is July 20th in Atlantic City. But it was real good, real impressive, great show. Second round knockout. What you saw was about 30 seconds of the second round. First round, he just felt him out a little bit. And then you saw what happened. He's a real patient counter puncher and real powerful. We've been working on that for years. So now it's coming through. So it's all good. Anyway, we have a great guest. Thanks to you, you know, I so say you're nailing them. So why don't you give us this introduction? So this is actually kind of more thanks to a, a previous guest, Master right. Wong, who was magnificent. So Master Wong's kind of forged a strong friendship with this week's guest. He's legendary trainer, John Pitmaster Hackleman. John created the Pit Mixed Martial Arts Center in 1985 in Woodland Hills, California, John is probably most known as being the coach of Hall of Famer and former light heavyweight champion Chuck Liddell, um, who we all see in the movies, as well as John's regularly appeared on the Ultimate Fighter TV show. There's a whole bunch of more UFC fighters, which we'll come on to in the interview. He's a native Hawaiian and his base style is Hawaiian Kempo, but includes like a lot of stand-up, ground fighting um, and influences from all sorts of other systems real interesting guy i've been following him a lot recently so welcome to the show john or should i call you Pitmaster? what do you prefer <laughs> john <laughs> john will do okay right john pleasure to have you on the show brother thank you great to be here what's it nine o'clock in the la now or something like that but yesterday i was watching your uh, video blog from yesterday talking about street versus uh sport punching who's Real good, real good. I just happened to catch it. it was a, I want to touch on that later. But anyway, I didn't even know you, you did all that on a regular basis. Yesterday was a big day for you, right, John? You bought a Dodge Ram. Yeah, I bought a Ram this weekend. I went in to buy a, uh, a Durango. I don't like trucks. I don't really want a truck. I didn't. I'm not a car guy. So I've already lost my like oomph for it. But <laughs> I was getting the Durango. The guy pulled it out. I was gonna. I already did the numbers with it. And then at the corner of my eye, I saw this fucking truck, and I was like, "What the hell is that? Dodge Ram Rebel?" I said, "I want that." <laughs> it was that quick of a decision, huh? Like that. He said, "You want to take it for a test drive?" I go, "No, just try it up the paperwork. I want that one." That's so funny. <laughs> do, you, do you reckon they placed it there just to upsell you? No, it wasn't an upsell. They were almost identical in cost. But a Ram's real big. I mean, it's like a bit of a monster truck. Yeah, it, it had such a bigger presence. I drive a Honda Civic, and I'm fine with it. It has dents and shit. It's, it's a dog car. <laughs> I don't care about cars. My, my watch costs more than my car. 
I get more excited about watches than cars, but this is a big presence and this is really gonna, I think it's good for the gym and good for my wife and I to have that truck around and we're gonna put the pit on it and- uh, Oh yeah, that would look great. I love it, but I'm not, like I said, I'm not a car guy. I already lost my like, oh, I gotta go check out my car. All right. You're a watch guy? You've always been a watch guy? Yeah, like if my wife comes home like most, some guys are doing porn online, and she, if I find I close my computer real quick, and my wife comes home, she knows me already. Looking at watches, knives, guns, or hip hop, <laughs> like, like the pop lock. I'll watch pop locking all day long. Pop lock. <laughs> that's so what, funny. It's dumb as shit. That's great. Oh, man, so you, you were actually born in Hawaii? You, you were raised there? I moved there when I was, like, four years old. And then I was raised there until I, you know, left to pursue a fighting career in right. L.A. I thought L.A. would be a better place to do it. Right. So when you're in Hawaii and you're a white guy, you may, I heard you make a reference to it, that you had to learn to actually... The reason you took karate was so you wouldn't get your... Uh, your ass kicked. Is that yeah. essentially what brought you to the gym? I say growing up in Hawaii in the 60s and 70s, where I grew up with long blonde hair, was like, to me, it'd be like if you're black in, in the South in the like 40s or 50s. Right, so, sure. So they beat the shit out of you, kill Howley Day, give you dirty look. Like you can't even look back at them or they'll start a fight. And so I grew up with that. I wanted to find a martial arts school. When I was like nine, I started looking. You know, my mom and my dad didn't really care. They're like, because it's different for adults. I knew sure. in school it was going to be different. They saw the, you know, the hate for the whites, but it's different in school. It's a lot more compressed in one little right. place. So I just knew it was going to be bad. So I went to a karate place or a martial arts place, and I just happened to go. This is the kind of luck I've had in my life, which is all mostly good. I just, you know, it was my choice to do martial arts. I took the bus at nine years old, and I walked into it, and I just looked around, and at that age, like nine or ten years old, I said, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I didn't even start the class yet. I just looked around and go, no kidding. I'm at home. And I walked into my instructor's office, find out later, it was a cover, because he was a drug dealer, strong arm. Uh, <laughs> he was a criminal. I mean, like a straight up, he had already done 20 years in prison when I met him. And then he went back in prison a couple times since I knew him. But, but I walked in there. I said, hey, I want martial arts. And yeah, yeah. All right, get the fuck out there and train. And never charged me. Never. I don't think he charged anyone there. It was like 600 square feet. It wasn't much bigger than my office. It was like, it was just a tiny little place. And there was like punching bags, makiwaros. And we would just beat the shit out of each other. And he would come out once in a while. And I stayed there with him until 2001 when he finally passed away. Oh, my God. Was it a So he was a Kaiju Kembo guy? Kaiju Kembo, yeah. Uh, no kidding. So why you walked right in? Because Kaiju yeah, is the real deal. It's not super well known, but it is, without a doubt, an excellent martial art. Real, like you said, yeah, real street fight. I mean, to be honest, like, once they brought it to the mainland and they started, like, doing, like, Sifu and Seagung and and like mixing it with different arts. It became less of the way it was back home. And number two, they did a lot of katas and forms and I didn't like them. 
And I used to tell him when I was a kid, I go, hey, why am I doing this move right here? If, if I get jumped in the street, how is this going to help me? And he would just say, shut the fuck up, do it. And when you, <laughs> he used to say, when you get your black belt, you can do whatever the fuck you want. But right now, just shut up and do it. That's great. I want to do that at my school. Right. So that, yeah, that, was, that was his explanation. So as soon as I got my black belt, as soon as I opened my own gym, I took cocktails out of the equation. Uh-huh. And I still have a curriculum, you know, white to black. And it's still a, it's a rotating curriculum. But I've taken all the choreography out and all the right. forms. It's quite a family, the Kajakembo right. guys. Are you still friendly with a lot of them or you've parted ways? You know, like they asked me this year again to go to the Kajakempo Brotherhood, do a seminar. And I have a bunch of Kajakempo guys that follow my stuff. And uh, I go down to Kajakempo Place and do seminars every year in San Diego. Yeah. I'm still, I love Kajakempo. Kajakempo is my roots, you know. I have Hawaiian roots, uh, but I also have Holly Pride, you know. So, it's <laughs> yeah. good too, you know. And, and right. I love Kajakempo, but I also know that, you know, katas don't work. And I know that uh, Hawaiian Kempo is my system. So, right. But I love Kajakempo, guys. Godin wasn't shy about what he was doing and wasn't shy about hurting and beating people. And he wasn't shy about any of it. And I got to know him very well. For some reason, he took me under his wing, even as a young, long, blonde-haired kid. And by like 13, I got my first test in school where a big local guy tried to take my lunch money and I beat the shit out of him in front of everyone. <laughs> wow, that's great. Were you always a big guy as well or not? Not at all. I'm very average. I'm an average size guy. I got big shoulders. I'm, a, I'm about 200 pounds, 5'11". Yeah. When I was a kid, I was an average size kid. I was actually kind of skinny. But this guy, just out of giving him a dirty look, or I looked back at him. We got into a fight and it was in front of everybody. I beat the shit out of him in front of everybody. And right that second, my life changed for the best forever. Everybody left you alone after that, I guess. I could walk around looking at the biggest locals and say, what the fuck are you looking at? And from that second, everything changed. And I didn't do that because I'm not a bully type. Then I started fighting, you know, and then I fought the Golden Gloves. I won the Golden Glove for the state. So oh, nice. that is- I didn't know you were a Golden Gloves boxer. That's crazy. So you, you went and separately trained that as well in Hawaii, or did you just get that from? Godin, my instructor. I pulled the hamstring, and um, I was like, hey, Chief, I, I pulled my hamstring. I can't really kick because I was more of a kicker. I was like, I wanted to stay away and kick, do like kicks and, and not engage a lot. But then he goes, oh, shit, okay. Well, he sent me down to a local boxing gym, and he said, just work on your hands. When your hamstring's better, you can start kicking again. I said, okay. So I walked into this ghetto boxing gym, which is right in the middle of, you know, the housing project. Hey, Walter Goodin sent me. And they go, okay, come on. And next thing I know, they're not only teaching me boxing, they lined up a fight for me. I was like 14. It was like, you know, the police athletic league. So, right, sure. So I started fighting, and I was like the only kid with long blonde hair. It was all you know, Hawaiian kids fighting. And next thing you know, I, my he- hamstring healed. So I went back to Godin. By that time, I was like hooked on boxing. So I was doing both. So I like 14 years old. That's all I did. I would like catch the bus, go to Godin's, train, go to the boxing gym, train, go home. And that was my whole life. Wow. See, boxing is a great addition. I think a lot of guys in just pure martial arts, whatever it is, just uh, don't seem well, to find the beauty of pure boxing. 
You know, it, yeah. it's great. I think that might have been one of the best things you ever did, and it happened by accident. No, the choices I made and the way it was came together like a puzzle. When I look back at it right now, I mean, everything from that to going into the Army to being on the Army boxing team, then going to college, becoming a registered nurse, then meeting Chuck. Everything that fell into my life, when I look back at it, it's like, oh, it's like how did that happen? How did that happen? Why did you go into the Army? Was that something you always wanted to do or just they, needed a they, job, so to speak? No, not at all. I ran, took the yeah. hostages. Yeah. And my dad was in the Army. My dad was in the infantry. I just thought, oh, shit, we're going to war. You remember back then? I mean, you guys are probably yeah. too young to remember. But, oh, I'm but, not that young. <laughs> We were going to war. I mean, we thought right. we were going to war with Iran. So I was like, fuck, I'm going to war. I'm going to, I might as well join. So that way I get a head start. I'm going to go in the infantry because my dad went in the infantry. So I just went down to the recruiter. I said, hey, I want to go. Let's go to Iran. And I joined the army and I was like, I go through basic. And even in basic, I'm telling you, I swear to God, even in basic training, we get off the bus and they're yelling at everybody. You fucking guys, I'm going to kill you. And, you know, the drill sergeants are yelling. I just looked at it. I swear to God, this happened. Goes, <laughs> I'm going to kick your fucking asses. You guys are a bunch of pussies. Except for you, Hackleman. And I was like, that's what martial arts did for me. And I would like walk around with my pockets unbuttoned because they hated that. And they made people do push-ups. And they would say, John, can you please button your pocket? Like, and they said, don't have to do push-ups. They go, do you want to do push-ups? You can do them. What, just can, yeah, can you please button your pocket? But then when I get out of the arm, okay, check this out. When I got, they gave back the hostages. I really right. gave back the hostages. So I'm in the army and I'm like, so I went to my first sergeant. I said, hey, uh, guys gave back the hostages. There's not going to be a war. I don't really want to stay in and just do, you know, KP and shit like that, guard duty. So if there's a war, you can come back and get me, but I don't want to stay in. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> His name was Marcus Weary. He was like, okay, that's kind of funny. He said, but you won the Golden Globes last year. And I was like, uh, yeah. He goes, why don't you box for the Army? I said, what does that mean? He goes, well, the Army has a boxing team. And if you make the team, that's all you have to do. You don't have to do guard duty. You don't have to do KP. That's all you have, you have to box. I go, oh, sign me up, bro. And so, <laughs> that's so cool. Like he talked to the captain and they made some calls. And next thing I know, I'm on a plane for uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, trying out for the all-army boxing team, which I made. And all right. that's all I did for the rest of my time while I was in the service. That's a great story. Were there good boxers in the Army? Did they train you well? Did you learn anything new? Or At that time, the Army was like the top team, one of the top teams in the country. Oh, okay. Better than the Marines, better than you know any other branch of the service. But they also had a really competitive team and um, a lot more experience than I was. I don't even know how I made that fucking team. When I actually <laughs> tried out for the team, when I made it, I went in the dressing room. I just put my head down. I was like, I, I can't believe I just did that. And I was like, I started crying a little bit, like, this is going to change my life. And, like, everybody thought I was hurt. And they came in the dressing room, and they, they like, put my arms around me, and they're like, hey, Hackleman, you all right, man? What's the matter? I was like, nothing. And I went outside. I called my mom, and I told her. And uh, that's all I did for the rest of my time in the Army. And it was probably the best team I've ever been on, this closeness 
And then I went from being the only white kid because there's all Hawaiians to the only white kid because there was all blacks on the team. (laughs) Why? What is this? What test is this? I mean, I was never been so close to, you know, 11 other guys. We did our road work every morning. We went to the gym every day. We go around fighting on different events. And there's just, it was such an experience. When I got out of the army, it was unbelievable. When you got out of the army, John, how soon after that did you go to California? I went directly. When I got out of the army, I had a job waiting in Hawaii to be a police officer. Wow. But I really wanted to try boxing. So my mom had just moved to L.A. with her new husband. So when I got out of the army, I was like, okay, I want to try boxing. So I'm going to move to L.A. I'll give it like a month. If I can get an apartment, a job, and a fight, you know, join a team in a month, I'll uh, stay. If I don't, I'm going to go back to Hawaii, become a cop, and then, bang, I'll just stay there. I came to Hawaii, and, like, I think the second day I was in L.A., I was walking down the street in Santa Monica, and I came across Muhammad Ali's boxing gym. I walked in. I said, hey, I just got out of the Army. I was boxing. You know, I want to try joining the team. And there was, it was full of real fighters. The, the owner or the guy who was running the gym was Bundini Brown. That was Ali's guy that would like follow right. him around and go, float like a butterfly, sing like a bee. Right. He was running the gym. Ali owned it. But there was, you know, Larry Holmes trained there and Aaron Pryor trained there and a lot of high-end boxers that trained there. The guy said, okay, I'll get you a fight. And so I started training there. And then I got a job the next day at the Pritikin Longevity Center. Do you remember the Pritikin diet? I- I do. So I got a job at his center right on the beach in Santa Monica. People could come in for like something stupid, like $15,000 a month. And they could stay there and they could have like, it was like a diet and exercise retreat. Right. I got a job there. I was a cook and then I got the gym and I found a little apartment in LA. I stayed there for quite a while. How long after that you opened up the gym? I'd say five years. I started fighting. I was good. I hit hard. I wasn't great. In kickboxing, I won a couple world titles. But when I was boxing, I knew I wasn't going to be a champion. I was okay. And I did have kids. So I did have to work plus fighting. Which Um, is very difficult to do. Oh, my God. That's why I opened the gym. Because I was trying to juggle these things. And sometimes after working a double shift and then trying to train. I have a fight coming up. I couldn't make it to the gym. I just built a little building in my backyard and I started training back there. And next thing I know, this guy wants to train there. Hey, I heard you have a gym. Can I work out there? And next thing I know, I'm training people that want to fight. Fast forward like 10 more years, I retired from fighting. We don't want to stay in LA anymore. I'm married now. So I moved to where I'm living now to get away from the hustle and bustle of the city. I still wanted to have a gym in my backyard. So that's one of the first things I did when I bought a house. And this got or got a lot of coverage. And next thing I know, people like in my little town, you know, I'm in the newspaper, a professional kickboxing champion opens a gym in his backyard. Next thing I know, I'm, you know, training people. And then I get a call, and Chuck challenged me to a fight, and that's how I met him. Oh, wow. That's, that's, that's a funny. great story. I was wondering how he came into your life. 
Chuck just fucking randomly calls you up and challenges you to a fight? Kind of. He just started at Cal Poly. So he's a wrestler at Cal Poly. He was doing some traditional karate. And his karate teacher had a karate school in a neighboring town. It's like 20 minutes away. And he actually called me and said, you just opened a gym and I don't really like what you're doing. And I think you're kind of, you're, you're, uh, he does uh, like traditional Shotokan karate. It's like, yeah. I do, you know, it's actually called Khan, but it's like Shotokan. And he was like, spent a lot of time with this art and, you know, you come in with this sport and I don't think you're good for the art and it, it minimizes the art. And plus art, martial art is much more effective for the street. And you guys are just a bunch of sports guys. So I said, well, we could test it and I could come down there and uh, you and I could just like simulate a street fight and see who wins. And um, he said, okay, why don't you come down Friday night at seven? This shit happens. It's like a movie, but this actually It is. It's it's like right out of a script. So I told my dad, I told my dad, I said, hey, this guy challenged me to a fight, man. I'm going to go down there. He goes, I'm coming. Because my dad, by then, my dad retired from Hawaii and he moved in to my guest house. So he was living on my property. So he came down, we drove down there in my truck and I walked into the guy's office. He had a real traditional martial arts school. And I said, yeah. hey, I'm here, go, let's do this. And he's like, well, let me just tell you, my back's been bothering me. I said, you know, she would reschedule. He goes, one of my guys out there, he's gonna show you our system and how effective it is. And I was like, all right. So no rules, right? He goes, nope, no rules. We're going to, this is going to be like a street fight. I go, okay. So I, I look out, is this guy with a mohawk. Who has a mohawk? Seriously? <laughs> okay. So we went out, shook his hand, and boom, we started. And when we were done, you could tell he didn't really know what, he didn't really know as much, you know, that much stuff. Yeah. And he tried for a couple of takedowns, and there was some, you know, a lot of punching. I started throwing elbows, and his instructor was like, hey, no elbows. I was like, what are you talking about? This is like a street fight. <laughs> but anyway, so after we're done, I walk in. I'm changing. And he came in, and he said, hey, can you start training me and teach me some you know, fighting? And I was like, sure, bro. And I gave him my card. I told my dad, he's never going to show up. Fine. But showed up the next day. He started training me that day, and the rest was history, as I said. I had a set of balls on you that you just said, yeah, I'll come down and fight you. Did you never think twice that might be a bad idea, but you didn't know what you were walking into? To be honest, like, I just thought it would be fun. I was towards the end of my career. I think I had, like, two three more fights. I knew I was at the end of my career, and I just thought it would be just fun to go down there and shut up some guy who was fucking running his mouth. So how was it when Chuck made his way over to you? How was that transition? Was he open to what you were offered? Did you look at, see what attributes he had and try to work what God gave him, or did you have to recreate him? No, I never tried to recreate people. Uh, He had a much different style than I did. I just tried to minimize the bad things and try to maximize the good things and give him more of a work ethic like the pit training really hard, more of a fighter, but in a lot of the boxing training we did and kickboxing training. But, you know, I trained with the best. I was lucky. I trained with the best boxing team, the Army. Then I got to train with the best kickboxing team, 
you know, the Jet Center, Benny the Jet Yukiti. Yeah, nice. Lucky enough to learn from the best guys out there. So that's the way we trained, and the pit became like kind of a cult following in our town. You know, it's in my backyard. People got the pit tattoo. You know, we had jackets, and the pit became pretty well known in our little town. And uh, I opened it here in '90, and then in 2001, I opened my first like real gym like it was a commercial gym so i opened that in 2001 how did you like that transition because it's a completely different animal i'm a registered nurse i'm fighting a little here and there in fact chuck actually cornered me from my last and then we actually did a co-main and main event for one fight but uh i i got a job at the prison as a nurse registered nurse i worked in the er at the prison and Things just didn't work out for me there. I, I got into trouble here and there, and I just started messing up. Because it's in prison, and my attitude, you know, it's just, I'm not like your average nurse, so I'd whack a guy here, or Nixon, <laughs> Nixon, I'm, I'm like court, fucking getting, I'm, I'm scared, because I'm, I'm thinking, I got kids I'm supporting, and next thing I know, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to lose my license, I'm going to get sued, and yeah. like after Third time I had to go to court, my lawyer was like, uh, John, can we just quit this job, please? And I go, what else am I going to do? I'm a registered nurse. And that's the best job in town. He goes, how about if you open a gym? I mean, you love to teach martial arts. You have a lot of people that love training with you. I go, yeah, it's in my backyard. You know, I could never like pay rent of a place and support me. This is like, it's my hobby. He goes, you should open a gym. It'll succeed, and can't even defend you anymore. You're taking too much money. I can't defend you. Because <laughs> he was my friend, so he wasn't charging me. He said, oh. I'm spending all my time on you. You need to quit this job. I was like, I can't, but this, this is my, my kids. I got to have... You might not be allowed to for legal reasons, but would you mind slightly elaborating on some of these things that happened? Okay. Like, there's a guy... And the inmates are our workers. They actually work. They make money. And almost all inmates have a job. And then one of my workers, I asked him to go do some. And he fucking said, basically, I don't know his exact words. I'll paraphrase. You think you're a fucking tough guy. Which I, I don't <laughs> like Shut the fuck up. So I walked him into the employee bathroom. And I might or might not have punched him in the face three or four times. <laughs> He walked you to your face three or four times. <laughs> yeah. I got to say, he wasn't cuffed. He, would, he had the opportunity to hit back. Um, we walk out of the bathroom, and he's like, I'm oh, sorry, man. It changes. Like, it, growing up in Hawaii, people respect fighting. They don't respect money. They don't respect brains. They respected fighting. It was the same way in the prison. So after that, I got the respect. But one of the employees, another nurse, saw us coming out of the bathroom and his face was, might or might not have been a little bloody. <laughs> Allegedly. And that same nurse wanted me to write up another inmate because he wasn't doing something she wanted him to do. And she had a little hissy fit. I don't like writing up inmates because that gives them extra time on their sentence. And I don't want to give a guy extra time over something to do with work. I'd rather whack him. I mean, or hit him or something, you know? <laughs> right. No, because when you hit him, they'd rather be hit than have to spend six more months away from their family, right? Definitely. 
that was the better way to do it. It's yeah, more you're of doing a them a favor. Way. I think it was, and it was like more of a manly way. So right. I said, I don't want to write this guy up. And the guy was like a drug guy. He wasn't like a child molester or anything else. So I was like, I don't want this guy. And I know, you know, you get to know them because you're working with them eight hours a day. So like, I don't want to give so-and-so extra time. You want me to, I'll go whack him a few times, you know? <laughs> he goes, oh, you're picking the inmate side over me? I said, no, I'll actually punch him in the face if you want me to. But I'm not gonna <laughs> John, so, th so this has happened, right? And then somehow it's ended up in court. She got mad because I wouldn't write up this guy for her. So right. she told the associate warden that I was beating up inmates and it was making her workplace unsafe. <laughs> she got like three of her friends to testify with her. I'm in court for, you know, this unsafe work environment thing. That's so funny. Well, it's a good thing you opened up the gym. <laughs> there was a better one. <laughs> yeah, because it happened more than once. There's a guy that actually came up to me and if, if anybody's out there listening, you work at the prison, you'll know this guy. But he was a full-on martial arts guy. He would always be practicing in the yard. And he actually came up to me and challenged me. You know, I, I've watched some of your fights and da, 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 I think I could beat you. I go, let's do it, bro. And it wasn't like he wasn't angry. I wasn't angry. He's, it was a challenge. Just I set it up and we went into the inmate's bathroom or shower and a bunch of inmates, like, they were lined around it. And there was actually even a couple of guards. And we went at it. He was so tall. He's like a traditional karate guy. So I hit him with, like, one left hook, and he was done. But that was it. Over. But next thing you know, that was all over. That was, like, you know, being talked about all over. So nice. that didn't help my case. <laughs> it didn't help me in court, let me tell you. I'm sure it did not. How do you explain that one to the judge? I denied. <laughs> I denied. Let me tell you something. The inmates denied it, too. The, the that's so funny. The only people there were those staff, but they had alternative motives. They were trying to get, uh, the, like, a full retirement, like, and suing the prison and me for, like, $10 million. So they had ulterior motives. Wow. wow. Amazing. Amazing story. <laughs> we won the case. We yeah. actually won the case. But my lawyer begged me to quit. He begged me to quit. So I, I can did. understand why. I resigned from the prison and I opened the gym in 2001. And it's one of the best moves I've ever made. Oh, without a doubt. It changed your life. Did you ever thank him for that? Because, I mean, he could have gone the other way and say, you're a very good client who's making me a lot of money. Thank him in all kinds of ways. We're, we're really good friends. And his brother who is actually the sheriff of our county, is one of my black belts. Nice. Awesome. So once you got the school opening, Chuck Stair training, how did that transition from, from being the local karate guy to be internationally known was obviously in large part because of Chuck going to the UFC. How was that transition? You've never done anything on that level, I'm assuming, right? No, like my fight career, even when I won kickboxing titles, it was like a sparring session as many people would show up for like Chuck's fight. It was like a whirlwind. It just happened, and it just like it was the best and the worst thing that ever happened. It was terrible for my gym, but it was great for just me and my experience. I know it meant a lot to Chuck and did a lot for him. It wasn't really good for me as a martial arts school owner. In fact, if it wasn't for that journey I took with Chuck, 
I would probably be a lot more successful as a martial arts school owner. Really? Why do you suppose oh. that is? Oh, because when soccer moms or guys that want to learn martial arts, when they drive by my gym and they see the pit guy and they know what we've done, they only think of getting the shit kicked out of them. But And soccer moms think of me turning their kids into these bullying right. assholes. They go to the other local karate schools and they drive by mine because that, that's what they picture is happening in mine. So how do you balance that between like, you know, being the fight gym and being the soccer mom's gym for want of a better word? That's my biggest liability and my biggest asset at the same time because I get the name that might be an asset. But the liability is like when people come in now, like bring their four-year-old to come do martial arts. They'll say, after the first class, they go, they'll come to my wife and they go, wow, we've been driving by this place for you know three years. We were going to train here, but we thought there was just blood on the wall and we'd be have the shit kicked out of us. Right. You guys are an actual family gym. We never thought that. So it's hard to change that. So we try to do that in our marketing, but it's the hardest thing to do is change that perception that people have of us yeah jim's got the same thing at his place got a lot of real fighters boxers and the perception is that thing where fight jim it's a big ten thousand square foot facility great people but they'd rather bring their kid down the road to matter of fact one of my buddies who's got 500 students charges double what i charge for just traditional you know taekwondo but he's making bank so i'm doing something wrong (laughs) so it is. That's interesting. That it's. I've, I've never heard anyone put it that way. But you're absolutely right. Both a blessing and a, and a curse simultaneous, right? Yeah, it is. I wouldn't have changed a thing. But if I didn't have that, Chuck, you know, I would triple my uh, enrollment. What I'd have right now. No doubt. John, tell us a bit about the system that you deliver. Master Wong was referring to it as HK3. So it's Hawaiian Kempo. That's what HK stands for. Hawaiian Kempo. Our Kaja Kempo is the mind, body, spirit. I started in 85. It was like, I took all the boxing. I brought in the kickboxing. Everybody likes to say Muay Thai because it's a trendier name. And then I took in some of the ground, mainly getting up off the bottom, some submissions, some submission defense, but how it relates to the street more than anything. Where it's the most different is as part of my curriculum and belt testing, there is CrossFit, right, which is our version of CrossFit. That's our physical preparedness, and that's tested. Instead of katas, I had thrown that in. So people are tested on their physical preparedness as opposed to katas. They're learning all the other techniques, but that's on a rotating basis. So I don't test for each belt level different techniques because that would be too hard to teach. But I do rotate my curriculum. So by the time they get to black belt, I've never had like Joe Rogan look on my black belt and say, wow, that guy didn't deserve his black belt. Nobody will ever say that. So even though I'm not a fight gym per se for most of my students, you know, I'm not sacrificing any of the toughness by the time they get to black belt. The, the CrossFit training stuff, you know, how does that differ to CrossFit? We've even challenged CrossFit headquarters and they sent like their top CrossFit competitors to my gym and we've done competitions. And people say, how do you get that name? That's like, doesn't CrossFit get mad? The owner of CrossFit, Greg Glassman, he's the one that named it CrossFit. Oh, that's so funny. That's great. 
because in, when CrossFit first started, you know, and I had the pit, um, we became friends because we were kind of living. He lives in Santa Cruz. I live in San Luis Obispo. And we got to know each other. He liked martial arts and I liked fitness. It was like the second CrossFit affiliate gym. I would go teach fighting stuff at his CrossFit seminars when he started getting affiliates. And I said, yeah, I like that. I don't like that overhead this, and I don't like this. This workout's too long. My guys are doing too much of this. And he goes, well, that's what CrossFit is. I can't really change it. He goes, why don't we change it, and we'll make it martial arts specific, and we'll call yours CrossFit, and we'll call mine CrossFit. Wow. It started like early 2000s, 2002 or something. So we test our students, our fighters, train in it. Been on a lot of shows. You know, it's like one of my main guys, Court McGee. Court McGee and Glover, you know, Glover's shown up at a CrossFit seminar and he's beaten some of the people at some of the CrossFit workouts. And then Court McGee, he's like a freak when it comes to the CrossFit. So they brought up that CrossFit name a lot. So it'd be like we do striking, wrestling, Jitsu and then CrossFit. Those four things right there make up our complete curriculum, and they're done in like pretty much equal parts for each belt. And you're tested on them for each level, per se. But nice. we move your the biggest testing is attitude, attendance, and your conditioning. So that's what gets you moved to the next belt. That makes a whole lot of sense. Do you think it's becoming harder or easier to make money in martial arts? I think it's the same. I don't, I don't see any difference. I'll give the example of, you know, you're doing a lot of work with Master Wong. Master Wong's got a massive online presence and, like, you know, technology is changing and making everything so readily available. Jim and I have talked in the past about how seminars might have been massively attended 10, 20 years ago and the numbers slightly are dwindling for seminars, as an example. I'm not a big seminar guy. Uh, I don't attend seminars. I don't do a lot of seminars. I like have people come out for retreats before. I did that for a while. Right now, I just focus on the gym. And then when I do my seminars, like we're doing at the Super Show next month, I mean, it's like always the same amount of people. It seems like there's usually like 60 people, 80 people show up. And uh, right. I don't think it's, I've been doing it for 15 years. I haven't seen any change in that. Are you still training yourself on a daily basis? How has yeah. that changed throughout the years? I mean, you, you can't do it as intense as you did before. I actually do it more intense now than I used really? to. Really? And I actually have less injuries now than I used to. And I actually feel better than I used to. I don't know. I think my diet or something. What's the secret? I don't know, One thing I've been so lucky because I've been hit in the head so many times. Me too. <laughs> I can't even believe it. I started fighting so young and I fought yeah. so much. I can't believe I can remember my name when I wake up. And this right. knee thing and people with the hip thing and the this thing. I mean, my shoulders are sore. That's about it. But like, I just don't get injured. And I train with my class times a week. And then I do a couple of workouts on my own. But I just can't believe how lucky I am. My diet is uh, intermittent fast every day. I do a lot of bulletproof type stuff like high fat type stuff. If I was to stick to a diet, I don't really stick to one specific diet. I'm mainly paleo keto, but I don't say no to anything really. I'll eat anything. 
I have ice cream almost every day. I love ice cream. <laughs> I do too. It's an addiction. And, I mean, and that's it. I've never been drunk. Never. Well, I can't say that. <laughs> My 60th, which is coming up this year, I'm going to get drunk for the first time. No, that's a good goal. <laughs> no, stick it out. I'm going to have two bodyguards, two of my top students. They're fighters, too. One of them's been with me since he's four. Oh, now he's, shit. He's seven and oh. He's a pro MMA fighter. Right. And the other one's been with me since he's six, and he's like six and one as an MMA fighter. They're not allowed to drink. They're going to be my bodyguards, and I'm going to get drunk, and I'm going to tell everybody I see to go fuck themselves. <laughs> That's a good goal. Fine, like, like I've never done that. Like, just been drunk and go, go fuck yourself, you know. (laughs) John, how did the Ultimate Fighter TV show stuff come about, and how did you find that? Chuck asked me to like help him with the first one. He was on it, and I wasn't. I said, no way. It's like a joke, you know. And I never watched the show. It looked like a a reality show. Right. So I said no. And then when season 11 came, he asked me again, because he was going to be on it again. He goes, hey, this time, man, I just need you to help me pick out the teams and, and just help me once in a while. You don't really have to stay long, right? Because I don't want to stay in Vegas for all that time, you know? So he was like, all right, all you have to do, I'll fly you in and out of Vegas. You know, you help me pick the team and da-da-da. I was like, first of all, so I go down there. He was hardly there. I, w- I didn't leave for six weeks. He fooled me. I went there. They give me like a condo <laughs> there for the whole. I helped him pick the team. And then he's like, well, I got to go do this uh, event. And then I got to go do this appearance. Next thing I know, six weeks later, I hadn't left once. <laughs> but it was such a good team. I loved it. And, and uh, mainly Court McGee came out of that. And he saw the, the star quality in Court McGee from the beginning. I didn't. I loved Court. I didn't see him as winning it, but Chuck did. And Chuck wanted him on our team outside of the show. He wanted him part of the pit. I was like, okay, all right, man. So all of a sudden, halfway through the show, we could tell Court was that kind of fighter, really special. But then he wins the show. Court and I become really close. And uh, the show was a great experience. And then BJ asked me to be the coach for the season 19 and that was a lot different it didn't seem to have the same like chemistry you know with everybody i love dj but they do their own thing and i got really close with mark coleman i gotta say that i love mark coleman oh yeah but the team just wasn't the same like i would tell him something on the season 11 man they they soaked it up this season it was like i'd show him a left hook or something they go well, I was shown to do it this way. I go, well, do it your own fucking way then. Do it your way. <laughs> yeah. And like, I remember one show, one one of the episodes, BJ was telling the guy, wait, you're fucking telling Hackleman about a left hook? You're crazy. And then, it like, you know, with all the editing and shit, like, it showed the guy losing the fight, and BJ said something like, you should have listened to Hackleman. Yeah, how they tell their own story, right? Oh, my God. The, the editing on that show was unbelievable. But, um... Season 11 and all of them, but the, the two I was on. I love BJ and I love Mark Coleman, but I just never really connected with the people on that show, the athletes. Like I did season 11, I fell in love with those guys. Yeah, right. 
Master Wong, how did you meet him and how's that relationship coming along? There's certain people that you meet, you just know. To be honest, like when I first met Chuck, he came to my gym the, the second day I met him and it was raining and he drove a motorcycle. I let him borrow my truck to go home that day because I didn't want him driving. I just knew. What? I just knew that he was going to be part of I know Master Wong, we're like brothers. It's like the first time I met him, I couldn't even explain him. Even our wives were like, we were finishing each other. <laughs> <laughs> my wife would look at his wife and they'd shake their head. They'd go, they're like twins. It, what caught me about him, one of the main things was, I'm just trying to do more videos on TV and shit, you know, on, on YouTube and whatever. So he asked me, like, well, what's your goals? And I was like, well, I just want to get, you know, more. I'm not really, you know, mainly I'm a martial arts guy. Uh, I own a, own a school, but I just want to do this. And he spent so much time, like, just, like, helping me instead of, like, worrying about him. And it's like, okay, what's in it for you? It's like, I don't know, he just seemed like that guy. Yeah, right, right. He wanted to do some stuff with me. We met in Florida, and um, we connected. He's like my little brother. If I had a little brother, he would be just like Master Wong. He has haters. It's pathetic. Like, there's this one guy who, he, like, fought in the UFC, but he got kicked out because he did steroids. So he's kind of a loser, fucking cheat, whatever. And he has the nerve, like, to train. He builds his whole life, even his thumbnails of his videos, everything is about Master Wong. He's like, he loves Master Wong. He wants to suck Master Wong's dick so much. <laughs> It's like he loves Pastor Wong, and it's like he's That's a pathetic fine. fucking piece of shit. And he even he had the nerve. I thought it was bad at first. He called me instead of pitmaster, he called me cockmaster. Made me angry at first. Out that it was really a compliment because that was his mom's nickname in high school. <laughs> so he was from. He's. From, I think he lives in England. And from what I heard, I, I did some investigating. His mom still is known around town as being the cockmaster. <laughs> so, so at first it bothered me. Hey, that's kind of a compliment. I don't even know what you're talking about. God damn, that's entertaining as shit. Oh, god damn. That is so funny. You're you should be a comedian, man. You're funny. Wong is family to me, and he's uh I just saw his heart is he's pretty energetic. Oh, pretty energetic. He's, yeah. His heart, he has the fucking heart of gold. And, and anyone that can badmouth them, they're morally bankrupt and they have no heart. This like, it's just a way to try to like the scratch to climb up to fucking get themselves relevant by his coattails. Yeah. They're just fucking pathetic pieces of shit. It's like, it's sad. But anyway, whatever, whatever. There's all, there's all kind of people out there, right? Yeah, yeah. So what does the future hold for you, John? Martial arts and, and family. We call it Ohana in Hawaii, you know, martial arts. Uh, our martial arts, Ohana, and, uh, you know, that's all I care about. My family through blood and my family through martial arts and surrounding myself with people like that. You know, it's just like, it's worked for me since I make, even Godin, who was a criminal, you know, and I loved him so much. He was a criminal, but he always created a family feel for me. And even though I know what he was doing on the outside, whenever we were training or meeting together with our martial arts people, it just always felt like this. When I was on the army boxing team, you know, I always felt like this. When I'm in the pit, 
it always feels like that. And uh, when right. I surround myself with people like that, I just feel happy. So that's what I've been doing most of my life. Just it's going to be the rest of my life like that. Love that. Love that. John, thanks so much. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the papers about your 60th birthday and your drunken exploits. <laughs> your bodyguards. Uh, man, it's been a real honor and pleasure to have you on, John. I just want to give you guys a word of advice from my mom, who's 88. Yes. 88 years old. And, and she's always taught me these things as a martial artist. Okay. We should always keep our hands up. Never let anyone take your lunch money, and you cannot unsuck a cop. <laughs> right? You cannot. <laughs> awesome, John. Words to live by, guys. Words, Words to, live to live by. You heard it from the man, the pit master, John Hackerman. Guys, thanks. Another great show from Primal. Tom, anything you want to promote? Anyone who's new to the show, you know, John's fans, we've got 75 shows when John goes live. Really good content. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. You know, follow us. We're trying to grow. Share it. Like it. Leave us a great review. Awesome. Thanks, John. Peace out, guys. have been listening to Primal Radio in association with Primal Gym and Primal Promotions. Primal Radio is available on all good podcast venues. To help us grow, please subscribe, like it, share it, and leave us a great review.